You are listening to the Horse Radio Network, part of the Equine Network family. Hello, and welcome to the Sport Horse Podcast. I'm Nicole Lakin. And I'm Tim Warden. And we are excited for another discussion with Jude Florio. Yeah, so Jude was on the podcast last year, and we had a very interesting discussion with him about equine high-low syndrome. Today, he's come to talk about some research that he's been doing, which is pretty cool. Um, Just the idea of trying to quantify things related to, um, you know, the work of a farrier um, and, and looking into, you know, the science behind it, I think is just a really interesting uh, conversation to to delve into. So we're really excited for this conversation with Jude that we had today. So Jude has served as a professional farrier for over 20 years, and he's worked with top professionals across a number of different disciplines. So for sure has very uh, you know diverse background. He earned a graduate diploma from the University of London's Royal Veterinary College in Applied Equine Locomotor Research. And he's currently uh, working on an MSc in equine science, uh, studying at the University of Edinburgh, Royal Veterinary School of Veterinary Studies, and is anticipated to complete this program in 2023. Hey, Jude, and welcome back to the Sport Horse Podcast. Yeah, thank you. Great to be back. So since the last uh, episode that we recorded, I think it was June of last year, 2022, uh, we finally had the chance to meet up in uh, Wellington to just talk about some different ideas, which uh, I, f- I thought was a fascinating conversation. Uh, so you're currently carrying out some new research projects and are uh, analyzing the data right now. Do you mind sharing a little bit about why you've undertaken these projects and what you're currently working on? So... You know, right now I'm in the, the dissertation phase of a master's in science at the University of Edinburgh, um, connected with the vet school there. And, you know, we need to come up with a research project. The previous project I did when I was at the Royal Veterinary College was looking at breakover and, um, you know, it's commonly referred to in, in chewing as backing the shoe, backing the toe. Um, and one of the things is, is it was such a difficult study, uh, had me create a uh, new shoe and travel to England, which was great. And we did motion capture camera uh, stuff and, and a lot of analysis went into it. Fast forward to this study, one of the things that Pat Riley, uh, the farrier at New Bolton Center, and I think he uh, attributes it to Renato Weller, who's now at University of Calgary, formerly of the uh, Royal Veterinary College, is pick the low-hanging fruit. And I think farrier science um, is this field that remains somewhat wide open with not very much. There, there is study, obviously, in laminitis. There is study in pathology of the foot, but really, some of the basics are not even really quantified and looked at. So, my thought was, okay, let me just simply come up with study A that will make easier for me to do the data collection and go out into the field and get farriers involved. So my thought was every month uh, or every four to six weeks, depending upon the shoeing cycle, we come out and we address the feet as horse people know. 
but what exactly are we doing um, insofar as the changes that we're making to the feet and quantifying those changes and how we can measure those changes is simply measuring the toe's length and the hoof's angle pre-chewing, pre-trim uh, farrier intervention, and then the post-trim uh, and uh, shoe application. So my study is looking at shod warm bloods, um, the forelimb of uh, shod hooves up front uh, of jumping warm bloods. And jumping is defined as any type of jumping, hunter, jumper, or equitation disciplines, and the levels don't even really matter. So I'm enough to get eight farriers uh, willing to participate, five horses that are randomly selected from each farrier's list, and I've gone and done the pre and post toe length and, and hoof angle measurements, and currently in the process of analyzing that data. That's really fascinating. And it's it's almost shocking that something like this hasn't been done before. But I, I know that one of the issues that you've highlighted is that it's difficult to get other farriers to participate in these types of research projects. Why do you think that is? You know, that's a great, great question. And again, I think, you know, I'll always uh, advocate for my colleagues. I'll always be someone that promotes um, the business uh, and promotes how difficult the job is. That, that's really one of my personal goals, uh, being involved in the industry. And the industry has given me so much in my own life. Uh, so I'm very grateful for that. I think, you know, the thing about shoeing is it creates a lot of insecurity. You know, speaking from my own personal experiences, you know, I do a job. I don't know of any farrier out there that doesn't care about the work that they do. We invest, you know, not only our physical uh, well-being in the job that we do, but there's a lot invested. No farrier that I know of wants to hear, like, when they're done, there's a problem with the horse that's directly related to what they do. So fast-forwarding a little bit, you know, I look at – I could – put farriers in three groups, you know, when it comes to this project and wanting to be involved. You have farriers that are very, very interested in farrier science uh, and pushing the envelope and, and learning about why these things happen. Uh, and they're the first and foremost to jump at an opportunity to participate. Then you have farriers that again, are very interested in the industry, uh, very interested in their craft and their skill, enhancing it, honing it. Um, but they just don't have the time to really participate. Either, a lot of us are traveling. If you're doing the show circuit, you're traveling down to Florida, you have an inordinate amount of horses that you're trying to organize. Maybe the clients are a little bit quirky about, you know, somebody coming in and what are they measuring? Why are they measuring? So they're, they don't get back to you. But I think if the circumstances were right, they would probably participate. And then the last group is the farriers that really don't care. You know, they don't care about they're in the business because 
It's how they support their existence. Um, they're about the business of, of making money uh, and generating funds and really investing any sort of time in doing something like this. It, it, it doesn't really interest them. And, and I, I totally get it. You know, I don't, I don't even question it. I would say if I added another group, there would be one group that, I don't know, I, I guess they might be fearful that an outside farrier would be critical of whatever work they're doing. And, and that goes back to the insecurity aspect. I think when you're dealing with veterinarians, you're dealing with professionals, you're dealing with amateurs, and a lot of questions that go on about chewing, and a lot of these questions come from people that have zero experience. Um, so I think that also plays a role in the decision making. I think the guys that the guys and girls that are out there doing a good job, they're confident in the work that they do. They're interested in the science and improving themselves, and, and which would in turn improve uh, the work for their clients. They're all about participating. And then there's those few groups after that that I that I mentioned, and I think that's really where it comes from. And the one thing I would add, this being a big eye opener, because I've reached out to about fifty farriers. Uh, and I was really only able to get eight. And and of those eight, five were willing, three I kind of pulled uh, quite a bit. I, I, I would say I borderline harassed them to get them involved. Uh, and, and, you know, I think that's why maybe the science aspect is lacking, is maybe an unwillingness uh, for barriers to participate. I think that's a really, a really nice overview of not only the farrier world, but I think it, it applies to so many professions and industries, yeah. right? Like I think uh, you'd find sort of the same breakdown in trainers. Uh, you'd find the same breakdown in potentially breeders, uh, veterinarians, therapists, and then outside of the horse world as well. Mm. Um, like I do wonder. I'd be curious to hear what you think some of the potential ways to address this gap are. And then I also wonder, like, I'm, you know, you're located on the East coast of uh, us. And so I think like your network is largely probably that population of farriers. And is there globally like a, a research association for farriers or if there was someone, you know, let's say in, you know, Germany or Australia who also felt like they could, you know, maybe collect some measurements by themselves, maybe contribute to your study. Like, would that be possible? Like, is there a way to create a bit of a global community to answer some of these questions, do you think? I, yeah, I mean, I definitely think so. I mean, I've been fortunate enough to travel, you know, internationally and spent quite a bit of time in Western Europe, you know, through work. And, and I've gone to clinics over in Europe. Um, and I've gone up to Canada, you know, out to Calgary uh, when Spruce Meadows is going on. So, I mean, there is a global network of farriers out there, and, and most farriers, when we're together, there's a, there's a desire to, to, to share in knowledge, to share in, in, in experience. Um, because, again, 
you know, we know how difficult the job is. So when you meet another farrier, no matter how good you may think you are, uh, the reality is, is you're bent over at the waist, bending metal and applying it to a horse's foot. So I think to answer your question, there there are quite a bit of, of farriers out there. And I think it would be easy to organize if you set up a template and to start quantifying this on a greater scale. I mean, there's no doubt in my mind. It's, it's, it's very simple to do. It's very easy. As I said to my advisors, to their chagrin, it is part of my study is also uh, there's a qualitative uh, aspect, which was about 20, 25 questions in a semi-structured interview. If I eliminated the, the Q&A, I wouldn't need the farriers. I would just go directly to the barn manager or the trainer and say, listen, this is what I'm doing. Um, this is what I how I would go about it. And it's easy for a barn manager to say, like, you know, farrier A is coming on Tuesday. I have 10 horses you could measure. As long as you're here at eight o'clock, measure the 10. They would give me the pedigree information. Um, farrier A is done. Uh, Wednesday morning, come back, remeasure, and that would be the end of it. I mean, I get reaching out to these different barriers. It, you know, they were organizing their schedule, they're traveling, they're lining up the right client to do this. So, to I, I think it's a very simple study, and I think it definitely could be done on a grander scale for sure. Yeah, I think. You know, if you focus on those sort of first two groups of farriers that that you mentioned, um, and and you think about how you can get a little bit more of buy-in and acceptance, it, it totally makes sense your approach and basically what you've done by identifying those first eight uh, farriers is is found the early adopters, found the people that really believe enough that they're willing to. I mean, it's not even really doing extra work, but they're willing to spend a little time on something um, and, you know, hope to see the benefit at some point. So it sounds like, you know, to me that that you've got the right approach. Um, I, I'm curious, uh, you know, what are, what are some of the, um, the buy-ins that you can then sort of think about for the for the horse owners and the barn managers and such um in terms of where will they be able to access you know the fruits of your labor at some point and learn from it um is this something you know that's that's strictly going to be usable for farriers or is there um obviously it's benefiting the horse so it's benefiting us all but is there a way you know that horse owners and and caretakers can can benefit as well yeah, I, I, I mean, I think we need to start somewhere quantifying what we do every month. You know, part of the impetus for this was I learned how to do horses a certain way. And then over time, I've amended how I do it based on experience, based on education, based on other factors like the footing that affects horses, you know, my question was, is, okay, are we doing things the same 
or were we doing things so vastly different? I don't know. You know, I kind of think that we are doing things the same. Maybe Joe uses a different shoe than I do, or, you know, um, somebody else uses a pad when I don't, you know. So to directly answer your question, I think when we start learning, okay, taking the foot down this far, making this amount of change, what we can start moving forward where one of the things that they're doing in Europe is, you know, all this radiography, and I think in the previous um, episode that I was on, I talked about radiography is you can now quantify, okay, when I have this alignment and it measures this hoof angle and I have this toe length, I'm reasonably assured if that horse is going well when I'm done, if I can get back there the next time I shoe the horse, I know that I'm in the right range of what I should be doing. So many times over time, like the foot migrates, certain feet migrate forward, certain feet migrate up. You know, we talked about the high-low. You're now going to be able to make those changes or when you run into a question mark, you could say to yourself, you know, I was able to get that foot to 50 degrees the last time or three shoeings ago. I should be able to get back there. Now, there are certain things that may happen in the foot. And obviously, we don't want to put horses into a box per se. But um, I think if we start doing this, and, and other people are doing it, I mean, you know, but if, but, but, we could now put down on paper what a lot of us have kind of come to learn in, in our own practice. And maybe the future barriers uh, will be able to reflect in a book or the podcast or an article. Say, oh, you know what? With this horse, if you could get to these numbers, you, you know that this horse is going to be uh, doing well, going well. Um, right now, it's kind of like all word of mouth, and it's like all up here. Uh, but ops, you know, that's it. You lose it, you know. And that's that's one of the articles that I'm in the midst of writing right now is the horsemanship. You know, you as a rider and a horse owner, we're starting to lose some of the knowledge that we've had for generations because maybe generationally there's an unwillingness to take some of the experiences from um, our elders, so to speak. So I don't know if that answers your question. <laughs> yeah, it does. No, I, I think over the years and as generations evolve, I think we're losing a little bit of the why in the horsemanship. Mm. I don't think mm. that, that we're losing the horsemanship. I think it's becoming more of more and more of this is just how we've done it instead of breaking down the why, which I think is the compelling piece of it all. Um, and it's funny as, as we've done more and more of these episodes, I, I see so much um, of the horsemanship and the science being aligned and intertwined. And 
it's been a surprise to me because I always see it as there being a huge gap between the two. But really, I think, you know, horsemanship and most of the things that that we do have very good reasons that have some roots in in fact and in in hard science. And we've just, I think, lost a little bit of the why, in my mm. opinion. But mm. anyway, sorry. No, I listen, I agree. And I I it's again, Renata Weller, T. Lofau, part of the reason why they created the graduate diploma in equine locomotor research is the farrier industry has been smoke and mirrors. You know, you hire a guy, he comes out, he quote, fixes your horse. What is it that they he or she did to fix your horse? You know, and well, I did this and I did that. Well, it has to be some scientific reason why you got that result and quantifying that result. Because if you know every time when I walk in and see a horse that there's a question, if I do A, B, and C, I'm reasonably assured that I'm going to get D. You know, there has to be a reason why. Um, you know, uh, anatomically, biodynamically. So quantifying that is going to make it easier for the future people to know when I have this type of foot and I'm having this type of issue, if I apply this bit, apply this type of shoe, if I bring the shoe. And, and again, I think a lot of this is known through experience, uh, but it's not quantified or or written, you know, out there. And, you know, that's that's my hope. That's a lot of other farriers that are now a little bit more forward thinking and going back to school and really trying to, you know, improve the industry. We need to improve the standing of the industry. I think if I could go a little bit left field, um, you know, I was discussing with uh, a good, good friend of mine who's been a farrier for probably 50 years. He's now enjoying the fruits of his labor and tired. And, you know, we talk about the frustrations of farriers. It's one of the questions in my um, interview about the relationship between farriers and veterinarians and how some farriers struggle with that relationship. And I think part of that is, is we're lacking a little bit of the professionalism that veterinarians go to school, they learn about whatever is the, the, the animal science that, you know, large animal, small animal, and they become experts over time. And, and definitely... Individuals in this industry, the shoeing industry that have been doing it for decades and decades, they are experts. But what they lack a little bit is the polish that the veterinarians have. And I think it goes back to the previous you know, statement where I talk about insecurity. Then it becomes like a butting of heads where if you were able to articulate your point, you're able to really... Um, express why you had a particular opinion about how you're doing a particular horse, you may not run into that butting of heads because maybe there would be more of a willingness um, from whoever the veterinarian is at least 
see your side. One of the respondents said um, in the interview portion, talking about veterinarians, and I'm not looking to bash. I'm sure there is a few out there that are listening or will be listening. Um, He said there are veterinarians that want to get it right, and then there are veterinarians that just want to be right. And that's an interesting dynamic because the ones that want to be right, this is how you do it. We really don't care what you have to say or what you bring to the table. And the ones that want to get it right, we're willing to have that conversation. You know, so it's, listen, there's, you know, as a horse person, there's so many dynamics out there, all these personalities, all these relationships, everybody's trying to balance everything. You know, it's, it's it's uh it's an interesting business for sure. Yeah, yeah, it definitely uh some always some personalities, right? As there as there isn't any industry, I suppose. But uh, like just as you were talking, Jude, like I think that's another valuable contribution that projects like yours are going to add. I think right now, to your point, with like some of the disagreements or miscommunication that can occasionally happen across disciplines, I think. Oftentimes it's well, everyone's speaking a little bit of a different language, right? Like I think how veterinarians learn about like hoof care just through school and through their own experience is very different than how you know it and how you communicate about it. So you you understand it and through a very different lens and you have been, you know, it's been your life for X number of years. And so I, I sometimes feel like just I'm a numbers guy. I absolutely love numbers. Uh, if, if I'm ever into any sort of disagreement or issue, I'm always looking for numbers. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think it, it does allow for that communication across disciplines, right? And, and especially like if it gets to the point where you where you know people like you have collected enough data, then there's probably going to be courses offered it like as people go through to get their DVM that say you know like these are the different ranges that are acceptable in 95 percent of the horses, and, you know, and then when they show up at the barn and they're asking, you know, like the horse is this pathology and is it possible to, to change the hoof in a certain way, then the conversation is much more of a, you know, you're both speaking the same language. You're both talking about angles now and exactly what is possible and what isn't. Um, and so I wonder if that'll be another of one of the the benefits of what you're up to right now. I hope so. And I, and again, I mean, in that conversation that I talked about uh, with the, 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 the elder farrier, I'll call him, uh, you know, how much of this is really covered in, in vet school? My understanding from talking to um, farriers that work at the various vet schools, there really is no podiatry class. You know, it's really a vet comes out of school and has a special interest and they take the time. You know, if you look at all the vets that are down at Rudin Riddle, I mean, they're all Scott Morrison was a, a was a farrier before he went to vet school, you know, so he has an interest. He knows the industry. One of the vets that I worked for, I worked for his practice. He shoes his own horses. He was a farrier over in Spain, you know, before he went to vet school. So these uh, vets, they know what goes into doing the job. You know, and because there's so many things involved in shoeing horses, if you have a horse that is an issue, a training issue, a behavior issue, and you can't do a good job because they're too fractious on the cross ties, they're being held, they need to be sedated, 
you can't really expect that a farrier is going to hit every number perfectly or every toe length perfectly because the guy is just trying to protect his 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 well-being you know when you have horses that are trained properly well behaved manageable it exists i see it all the time i work on horses that you wonder if they're they're asleep while they're standing there you know it's just and then you know the other day i'm working on a horse that's super duper difficult you know you can't expect like the quality of work to be there if the horse is difficult or has any type of an issue. But if we start pushing things forward, if we do create these farrier science programs and we have vets that are interested in, in increasing their knowledge specifically on chewing, if we have farriers that are willing to, uh, do the continuing education, which a lot of guys in the sport horse uh, industry do. They participate in clinics. They go to these different symposiums. You know, so I think the ball is rolling. And I think with time, you know, this will be kind of a, a, a moot issue, you know, if it is an issue. So, Yeah, uh, I completely agree with those points. And um just switching gears here slightly, but I'm curious to hear your thoughts on as it becomes easier and easier to incorporate some of these uh, different measurement tools. I think some farriers are becoming more comfortable with it, but do you think it will get to the point where when we talk about farrier education and bringing along the next generation, like will we start to have exams where we're looking for like exact numbers from farriers when they go in uh, shoe horses, or do you think that that's something that isn't really on the horizon yet? Um, I don't know, you know, because the reality is, is there's one horse out there that's going to make you a liar. You know, I often tell my clients, like, you know, when everything's going well, everybody loves Jude. You know, when the horses win, Jude's the best. You know, when there props up some sort of an issue that may be, you know, sure related, Jude sucks. You know what I mean? So it's just... You know, again, my friend Tom would say, you know, you're only as good as your last horse. So as it relates to your question, I think that we will be able to have a good gauge of in these instances what you need to do to be reasonably assured of um you know, maintaining or improving optimal performance. But I think there'll always be a caveat that there's one horse out there that'll make you a liar, you know? So I think for 90% of the horses, you could probably fit them in a particular box, but there will always be 10% out there. They have some sort of confirmation. There's, there's issues with, there's idiosyncrasies there with the feet. We can't really understand why. We can only theorize why. We hope to figure out what works for that horse. And maybe that horse gets labeled as, oh, in this instance, this has worked with these types of horses. I think, yeah, I think we can measure and we can, if, if we do your network idea, 
see what's going on out there universally. You know, I mean, we could measure how big the horses are. We could measure how big their feet are. We could measure the changes and even list at four weeks, five weeks, six weeks. I think all of these things are very possible as long as we know that there might be a parentheses where, well, there may be one or two or five that don't fit. I'm sure there's like 95 that will fit. So it's worth a shot, you know? Yeah, that's really interesting. I, I think staying along the same lines and thinking a little bit about both uh, sort of current practice and and this sort of version of the future that we're talking about where where measurement is more incorporated into both practice and education. What do you think are some of the pros and cons of the mostly apprenticeship education model in North America versus the school model in, in a place like Britain, for example? Mm. Um, you know, I think the United States has always been sort of this a place where, you know, if you can make it, you know, well, I think, I guess that's the song about New York. You can make it here, you can make it anywhere. Um, we pride ourselves here in the country that, you know, if you have a work ethic, you're willing to work, you can do anything. You know what I mean? And I think with um, shoeing, I know that there will be certain groups out there that would be put off by saying, okay, we're going to create a program now and we're going to regulate everything because that's not really certain parts of, I mean, it's not really American in the sense of we want to give people the freedom and flexibility. I don't think it would be a bad thing that, there would be certain requirements. I mean, the racetrack has certain requirements for licensing. Are there ways and workarounds? Of course there are. You know, um, some of the other, um, you know, organizations that, that exist out there for farriers have these different programs, have these different certifications. I don't participate in it. Um, my argument would be, which I've adopted from Seamus Brady, who was, you know, like my main teacher, uh, who was the team farrier, the feeling of like the, you know, um, subjective uh, aspect of the grading. You know, when you make a shoe, you apply the shoe, you have a bunch of examiners there. There's always been a feeling like if you're not part of that network, uh, they fail you. You know what I mean? Then you go to a different part of the country. They don't know who you are. You do a good job. They pass you. I mean, if there was a way to be objective and create a program that if you excel and you have all the abilities. And again, the UK, you know, has been doing it for hundreds of years. You know, uh, um, and and listen, you could see certain farriers in the UK. I, I had a client that would import horses from the UK all the time. You look at the work, Ed, it's not amazing, 
You know what I'm saying? They went through schooling. I mean, so I don't know. It's it's an interesting question, and and maybe other guys and girls would chime in a little bit differently. But I don't think there's anything bad with education, ensuring that you know people out there competent and qualified. I think there's been this universal, like, if you don't do a good job, you're not getting referred. You know, I I never really passed out maybe one business card, maybe one phone call. You know, I don't even claim to be that good. But, you know, the reality is, is, you know, it's a word of mouth thing. That's how it's always been in the industry. So if you're not really good, people know. But maybe that guy or girl who's not really good, maybe with some help through a program that's recognized, maybe they would get better. Or maybe they'd come to recognize that maybe shoeing's just not for me. I need to find another industry. I mean, I think we see that in a lot of vocations, uh, you know, in this country and many countries. People, I was in law enforcement. You know, I had a horse interest since I was a kid. Rode horses. My uncles were part of the mounted unit in New York City Police Department. That was my dream, you know, to be a mounted cop. And then I realized, like, after probably the city spent hundreds of thousands of dollars in training and stuff like that, like, after five, six years, I go, this is horrible. I got to go do something like with the horses because the horses bring me peace and joy. And, like, this is a waste of time. So maybe creating programs, even, you know, for the vets, for the farriers or for future farriers, you know, give somebody an idea like, wow, this is a tough job. I don't really want to do this, you know, because I think what's lacking at times is how many farriers, you know, have zero horse experience. And I'm amazed by those individuals because horses have their own personalities. They have their own quirks. You need to sort of know the animal. Now you got a a guy or girl who's like doing probably arguably the most invasive thing that we do on a monthly basis. That if it's not done right, could be very detrimental, you know. So I don't know. I just gave you the whole (laughs) gamut answer. Is that very political? I think so. (laughs) I I thought it was really informative. Yeah, you did a great job covering all the bases there. So, yes. uh, no, like I, I agree though. I think um, you know different models have their pros and cons, and like I think it comes down to at the end of the day, it really depends on like in any industry, in any walk of life, like how motivated you are to do what you do, right? Like if someone is truly motivated and they love uh, the craft they've chosen to pursue, whether they have school programs to go through or whether they're going like an apprenticeship route, they're going to be successful mm. most likely. Right. And then conversely, like, like I, when I was going through grad school, like you, I would teach a lot of like undergrad courses and like these little workshops and so on these tutorial sessions. And like, you'd always have those kids in the class who were super keen. You could tell they were interested uh, and you, you just knew, like, yeah, if this, you know, individual chooses to pursue, uh, you know, a, a career or some path that's related to this, like, they're going to be successful. And then you have other kids who just do not want to be there. And, like, you cannot, if they don't want to be there, you cannot, there's nothing you can do to make 
them uh, succeed, right? So, right. Uh, yeah, I think those are all really good points. Uh, just looking at the clock here, I think that's the uh, the end of the uh, episode uh, with uh, okay. Jude. Thank you so much. Uh, I always really enjoy our uh, discussions, uh, learning a lot. Um, uh, thank you again so much, Jude. Yeah, thank you. I think this forum is is an important forum. I think we need to do more of this stuff. We need to, you know, come together because all of us care about horses. All of us want horses to be sound, to perform well, to do the job that whatever the job is that we've selected for them. And, and the only way we can do that is really communicating, sharing the knowledge with each other. So I appreciate that uh, you guys had me back because I love talking about this. Awesome. Yeah, thanks again. So uh, super thankful to Jude for joining us today. Um, I think he has a, a really nice um, perspective on the industry. He's for sure uh, been working at a high level for a number of years now. And I think he, he sort of in, enjoys and I appreciate that he does it, like seeing things from, you know, multiple different viewpoints and different angles. Uh, and it's exciting to hear about how he thinks this research will fill some of the gaps that currently face uh, failures. Um, you know, like it, as we went through that conversation, uh, you know, we talked a lot about how farriers uh, do their job and some of the challenges facing them, as well as, you know, veterinarians came up quite a bit in that discussion between farriers and veterinarians. And I think both roles are incredibly complex and incredibly difficult, right? And so just hearing and discussing some of these ideas with Jude about like, how do we find some common ground? How do we make it a little bit easier for that communication to take place? And I think that uh, most farriers and veterinarians, and hopefully, uh, you know, you listening at home, you're, you're one of the lucky ones who has a team around you who truly cares about the horses and are, they're doing everything possible to make uh, your horse perform the best that it can while staying as healthy as it can. Um, just thinking about that communication like how do we foster that how do we make sure that it's a true level playing field where people feel open and honest about those discussions uh, that they don't feel insecure or a little bit hesitant to share information because they're afraid about how the other person will perceive it so yeah it's, it's a really fascinating discussion i feel like it's got a psychological component it obviously has a skill component there's so much to it and yeah i think just really cool to hear about how the research can contribute to that yeah, absolutely. And I think any time that you're one of the first to do something that that may be perceived as a little threatening to sort of the incumbents, the people that have um, been around for a long time doing things the way that they do them, uh, you know, it can there, there's always going to be a lot of challenges, going to be an uphill battle. But, um, you know, it seems like Jude's got a nice group of his colleagues that are on board and are supportive and um, to me, that's that's the first and most important step is you get the buy-in early early on from the right people um, and the people who are are gonna you know put in the time and and support you you know no matter no matter what happens because just like Jude said you know horses can make a make a fool out of us all the time so uh, just because you have good intentions doesn't mean you know things are always gonna go the way that you want them to. Um, but I, I just, I just love how dedicated Jude is to this pursuit of, you know, the science of, of farrier work. And I, I think it's, it's really exciting and, you know, it, 
it also something I think I've said before, but anytime that you try to quantify things like this and, you know, measure things that, you know, the people at the top are maybe able to measure by eye, I think that you're making, making it more accessible to more people. And that's something that our industry needs on all levels. So I really applaud him for that. So, uh, As always, you can find the links to today's guests and the show notes at www.sporthorsepodcast.com. You can also follow us, please follow us uh, on Instagram and Facebook at Sport Horse Series. Please also uh, subscribe to the podcast so that you can get the new episodes dropped into your feed right away. It also helps other people to find our podcast, which, you know, it's a nice thing to do. You can have all 20 plus shows of the Horse Radio Network with you wherever you go with our free app for iPhone and Android. Just go to the app store and search Horse Radio Network. And here's to keeping your sport horse happy and healthy.